This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And, Bob, welcome to the merry, merry month of May. Here it is, the 2nd of May already. And finally, we've got no snow on the ground for a change, at least at my house. That's right. I think in the greater uh, Duluth Superior area, uh-huh. most snow's gone. You don't have to get too far out of town, get no. back in the woods, and there still are huge banks out there. So I know we got listeners all the way up into the Ely area, and I know they have a lot of snow yet. What a year this has been, but... Uh, I think ice is out. I just was listening to the Wisconsin News. You've got your fishing opener, of course, coming up, which yep. is uh, a wonderful uh, indication we're, we're through the winter and close to spring. we got to wait another week, I think, for the Minnesota opener. But nonetheless, we are in May, Dave. Yeah, and, uh, well, uh, folks in Ironwood have a whole other situation going on. They ended up with, uh, like, eight and a half inches of snow there, so... Unbelievable. Yeah, the, very, uh, very interesting. The uh, lake snow machine is kicking in full gear in uh, <laughs> in parts of Wisconsin and upper peninsula of Michigan. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, both in Wisconsin and in Minnesota, we really have a couple of climates. we got our northern climate. And then, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I was down in the Twin Cities on the weekend. And, boy, they've got green grass and dandelions up and everything <laughs> down there. Wow. So uh, it felt like they really had spring on its way. Uh, and I think the same is true in Wisconsin. You go north and south, we go into the UP, and uh, still pretty uh, pretty cold at this point, particularly when you've got this kind of a very, very long winter. Kind of interesting, we've got the month of uh, May coming up here, and uh, questions in my mind about this no-mo-may concept. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun, Dave. Uh, have you lived in Wisconsin most of your life? Are you, would you consider yourself a Wisconsinite, Dave? I would say so, yeah. I, I was in Duluth for maybe a couple of years. Other than that, it's been... All Wisconsin. Sure. All Wisconsin. So you have that orientation. It's kind mm-hmm. of fun because we've got a lot of listeners in Wisconsin, a lot of listeners in Minnesota, so we can kind of uh, pick and choose the best from both locations, <laughs> which is fun. Now, Wisconsin, of course, brought us this concept, and I think it went throughout the Midwest to continues to grow, this concept of no mow may. And uh, I was asked about that. I did a little bit of uh, research about that. Uh, originated in Appleton, and they've informed folks where Appleton is. You know, Minnesota folks aren't too oriented to uh, Wisconsin. <laughs> it's kind of in the eastern part of the state, kind of in the middle, but, uh, you know, right along Lake Michigan. Right, just south of Green Bay. And mm-hmm. they go to Green Bay because I think they have a football team over there that uh, That's true. a little bit of uh, attention from time to time. Yeah. So just south, <laughs> we have fun. That's without my bucket list. I'd like to get over there sometime and, uh, mm-hmm. and see one of those games. That would be fun. But Appleton, just a little bit uh, south of there, they got a, a fine university there, Lawrence University, and there were two props there, Dr. Uh, Israeli Del Toro and Dr. Ribbons, that uh, were concerned about pollinator populations. These are the insect pollinators, the bees, the bumblebees, and the native bees. Now, we want to clarify one thing. Our honeybees, of course, are not native, and they've never really been threatened uh, uh, they are really raised kind of like a crop, like livestock, and a lot of our local bee producers will bring a lot of these bees in from other production areas. So uh, they never were as threatened as much as the native bees and the pollinator bees. And so many of these natives are small, they're inconspicuous, except for the big bumblebees, which are pretty obvious. But a lot of the real uh, effective pollinating insects are quite small and diminutive, you almost have to look for them, but they they really do uh, a fine job, and there are literally hundreds of species, about 400 species of uh, noted uh, uh, native bees in Minnesota, and I'm assuming the same thing in Wisconsin. So uh, we've got these pollinators. They do a great job. 
we have to have pollen transfer, of course, if we're doing fruit to production. The pollen itself, uh, raised on a portion of the plant, that has to be distributed to the, that's the male component, has to be distributed to the female component, and then we have to have seed produced, and most of what you consume, like a tomato, is really this ripened over, over all the fleshy material that surrounds uh, that seed production. So pollination, the transfer of pollen, and then fertilization has to occur before we get uh, so many of our very valuable uh, fruits certainly fruits and this would include uh, from a biological definition this would include all those vegetables that have seeds and have the ripened ovary wall they really are fruits so peas and beans and and um, tomatoes I mentioned they really are fruits in addition to the apples and the blueberries and so forth so uh, pollinating insects uh, do provide an essential function for this whole process so these two profs uh, came up with this thought of well why are we mowing our lawns in May when we're clipping down a lot of flowering plants that uh, pollinating insects depend on for uh, both, uh, you know, principally for food supply, nectar, and getting them off to good start. So this is an idea they came up with, and it was tried not too long ago, 2020 is when they, they did experimenting with it, and then uh, last year, 2022, they passed an ordinance in Appleton, uh, the Appleton City Council did there. And, of course, um, a lot of the homes, uh, you know, took on a little bit of an unkept appearance, and apparently that bothered some folks. So even this year, as recently as about a month ago, there was a resolution introduced to eliminate the no-mow-may ordinance, Uh-oh. but that failed. So as it stands right now, they actually have an ordinance in uh, in Appleton. I think most municipalities, it's kind of a suggestion that's taken off. So it spread to about 13 or 14 municipalities of Wisconsin, came across the border, and I know we've got uh, No Mow May campaigns in a number of communities in Minnesota, and I understand now down in Iowa as well as Illinois. So it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting concept. Uh, didn't necessarily originate in Wisconsin, however. came in from Britain, oh. like a lot of our, uh, which I found out to be the case as well. So that whole concept and the concern for pollinators I really came across uh, the big pond, so to speak, like so many things in our culture have come from uh, the British Isles there. So nonetheless, uh, now it's become even a little more controversial because we have an extension turf specialist, Dr. John Trapper, that has raised some points about the no mow may concept. And um, I will share these with you. Some, of course, now he's based at the University of Minnesota on the St. Paul campus, uh, what we call our ag school or ag campus. And that's quite a bit warmer than it is here, so he makes the point that if, in fact, you don't do any mowing until June 1st, you might have a lawn that has uh, grass that's a foot in eight, and now you've got to deal with all of this uh, extra uh, turf, and you've got to, you, if you just let it lie on the lawn, of course, it's going to damage the lawn significantly. you got to pick it up. you got to move it. Uh, there was a time when we swept all these things, the clippings in landfills. Now we're well aware that... Uh, we really want to redeposit those clippings onto the lawn. So if you take everything off, now we've got the potential for a nitrogen deficiency on the lawn as well as this uh, matting factor. And then there are a couple other points. We let our, our dandelions grow so they're not mowed. Well, obviously, you're not going to be suppressing the seed population because if you mow early enough on some of the dandelions, you eliminate the seed production. So we get a heavy... Uh, population of just the dandelions and then another concept we really want to look at uh, maybe a even a better alternative if for folks that are concerned about first maintaining a lawn now there's some folks that don't want any lawn at all and of course 
Uh, this is a free country where you still have liberty to do a fair amount of things. I know we've got city ordinances now uh, that may control some of this, but nonetheless, uh, people want lawns. you got to be able to uh, utilize the space outdoors. Even if you've got pollinated gardens, both fruit and vegetable gardens, we're seeing more of this, kind of this integrated garden approach. We did just a big conference on on cottage gardening where the lawn has been minimalized and uh, our ornamentals as well as the edibles are taking up more of that uh, real estate uh, for productive purposes. The flowers, of course, for the beauty as well as the pollinating uh, potential for pollinating insects. And, of course, the edibles goes without saying that uh, are productive as well. But there's still going to be a lawn. There has to be a way to work our way between the gardens and folks if they want to make utilizing that area, turf area for outdoor activities, whether they be uh, sporting activities for the kids or whether they just a barbecue for the entire family there. So we really want some lawn there. And lawn uh, species have to have certain characteristics, of course. They have to, we want to get the mowed done. We really don't want a hay field there. So they have to be uh, suitable to mowing. And maybe, um, they have to be also very durable in terms of uh, wear tolerance because you don't want to destroy the plants themselves. So lawns have gotten kind of a bad rap. Remember, again, they're great ground covers. They hold the soil in place. That's where the erosion comes from. Uh, when lush and green, they, of course, take carbon dioxide out of the air and kick out oxygen as a result. So they're great uh, from an environmental standpoint as long as they're properly managed. So we're not anti-lawn. We're just going to manage the lawn a little bit differently, maybe minimize the amount of turf grass and this opens up the potential for pollinating gardens with the flowers as well as edible gardens so maybe a good alternative would be to take a little look at some of the bee lawn species where you come along and uh, we want flowering uh, plants broadleafs that are going to be uh, very suitable for our pollinating insects to grab both some uh, pollen as well as nectar and in this area and it's an area we've really got to do some research about because a lot of the bee lawn mixes that provide these low stature flowering plants in the lawn remember again we'd like them below the mowing height so we don't clip off the flowering heads uh we've got to have materials that are certainly uh hardy for this area and the hardiness is number one you know dave we've we put out a lot of recommended lists. I've done a fair amount of work on that myself. And number one, if you've got perennial species, you want them to be around perennially for years and years. Number one for us is going to be uh, winter hardiness. This year wasn't bad that way because we had such a nice blanket of snow very early in the season. But I'll tell you, if that snowed come later and we'd had that cold weather and then the frost had penetrated, then hardiness would certainly have been extremely important. So. In terms of establishing species that are insect pollinator friendly, it interacts with the grass with all the value that the turf grass will have. We're really looking at uh, some varieties of low stature clovers so that we can mow over them and yet they flower nicely. Nice thing about clovers is they're legumes. They take nitrogen from the air, put it down in the soil that the plants can use. And, but we need no low stature clovers so that we don't mow off the flower heads. So we're looking at uh, bee lawn mixes. So uh, people are going to make their judgments this year about whether they're going to mow in May and whether they're not going to be mow in May. I think the thing we have to bear in mind is that uh, we don't want that grass to get too long. Uh, we don't want it to mat. If you're going to let it go, then you're really going to have to pick it up and compost it. 
And then you're going to have to be aware that in harvesting that green tissue and not letting it lie on the ground, uh, mow at appropriate height. The clippings aren't going down, so we're going to need a little additional nitrogen because uh, turf grass species need some nitrogen. We save about one pound per thousand square feet if we're letting the clippings lie every year for pulleys with this real long grass off. And if we compost it, which is what we encourage everyone to do, of course, uh, we can utilize that at another point. But the nitrogen will be lost, and we're going to have to think a little bit about uh, supplying a little more synthetic nitrogen or organic forms uh, for the grass to thrive. There's a discussion, a little lengthy, but I just wanted to share a few of those points with folks as they consider whether or not they're going to go no mow or partial mow or uh, some option thereof. Well, at this point, no mow is a a go for me because nothing is growing at this point, but uh, I'm sure eventually it will. But it's pretty (laughs) easy not to mow when there's nothing there to mow. Well, that's true, and uh, as you mentioned, we're off to a little lower yeah. start. <laughs> a lot of this discussion and some of the research does come from warmer parts of both Wisconsin right. as well as Minnesota, where Dr. John Trapper says you mow May 1, you might have, he said, 14 inches of grass down there in a wet year. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we're going to get that. No. If we have a green carpet by the end of May here, we're doing pretty well. So maybe no mow May works a little bit better for us, or minimal mow May or something like that, so people... Will uh, come up with some kind of a solution that works both for their lifestyle and for the pollinating insects. Yeah, usually by now, I got at least dandelions coming up, but nothing yet. So we'll have to wait and see how that goes. I suppose there's a way to maybe use a portion of your lawn and let that grow wild and cut the rest of it. Yeah, boy, that, you know that's a good idea. Uh, you know, assuming the, beer, the, the bees can find that little patch you left. <laughs> that's very true. Or. <laughs> Uh, maybe after the break we can talk about right. some of these native bees and uh, what you might be able to do and how you might be able to design kind of an integrated landscape that covers uh, some of these different concepts uh, right. and not necessarily what we used to call a monoculture, just all grass. Okay, Dave? We will take a quick break and be right back. It's the Bob Olin Show here on the 2nd of May. Finally getting into the growing season once again, here is Bob Olin. Yeah, Dave, you know, I thought we might continue on just a little bit of our discussion in this in this segment here. And then, uh, obviously, we're thinking about doing some planting and doing some, uh, uh, getting some of the veggies going. So maybe we'll have a little time to talk about that as well. So here we are. And, you know, our, our perceptions changed. There was a time when we had lawns that were strictly monocultures. It kind of looked like uh, living astroturf there where they wouldn't tolerate <laughs> a clipping. They wouldn't tolerate uh, a dandelion or anything else. And so we were putting a lot of nitrogen on there, getting a lot of lush green growth, and then we were mowing it all off, picking up all the clippings, disposing of them in landfills, and none of this really made any sense. So we've come around, and we've, we're at the point where we're going to tolerate a more diverse landscape instead of all lawn. We're going to look at this concept, which goes way back. I mentioned uh, this program we did on the English cottage gardens. There weren't a lot of lawnmowers around back then. And uh, every bit of that landscape initially had a purpose in the cottage gardens. These were were really cottages provided for the workers uh, by, um, at this time back in England, this is the 1800s, where we had kind of fiefdoms out there. So we would have uh, the property owner and then all the farm labor and the labor had these smaller cottages. So they're, they had about an acre to sustain themselves off. They grew mostly potatoes just for sustenance. And uh, 
most of that original garden garden was all about edibles because eating was a big deal and there wasn't a plentiful food supply. And then that gradually changed as uh, conditions improved and there was more food available. Then it kind of morphed into uh, more ornamentals. Ornamentals were really, in other words, flowers and flowering trees and shrubs were just a very secondary thought initially. It was food production and then it kind of changed. And now when we talk about uh, the cottage garden design concept, it's dominated by flowers and flowering material and from border to border and kind of like uh, organized confusion in a way. We've got big blocks of color, but we don't have a lot of things done in a real organized and linear manner. Instead, we got blocks of color with sustainable materials, a lot of natives, a lot of really high quality pollinators and minimal inputs. Obviously, back in early England, there wasn't even the concept of uh, synthetic fertilizers wasn't even around at that point. So there wasn't any inputs. There weren't pesticides. There weren't uh, synthetic fertilizers. It's just what nature is going to do. Now we've got a lot of options at this particular point. But back to the the concept here, where it fits so nicely with where we're going, uh, we really have this opportunity to design a beautiful garden. We want flowering material that really flowers from early spring right through late fall so we can in fact sustain these insect pollinators. We want an edible component there as well uh, because people love their own food supply. You've got food security, you've got freshness, you've got quality, and now we've got the economic impacts of the value of a, of a small vegetable garden in terms of helping with the family food budget. So. It, it's very interesting where this original concept of a cottage garden has gone kind of full circle, and it seems like it's very appropriate for so many people at this time. You mentioned, if, again, letting maybe a, a portion, portioning off your your landscape. So there's going to be a portion for edibles. There's going to be a portion for perennials, flowering perennials. And maybe, as you pointed out there, Dave, mm-hmm. a portion that isn't disturbed because our native uh, pollinating insects, these native bees that we talked about, so many of these rather inconspicuous uh, insects that do such a wonderful job of carrying pollen, they really overwinter a couple of places, either down in the soil, which is where most of them are protected, or they overwinter in uh, debris that's on the top of the soil, uh, limbs and so forth that fall to the ground and are partially decayed. So they're going to overwinter in these insulated pockets. But if we come along and we manicure everything, we clean everything up, we double-till everything, we destroy all this potential nesting area for these native species. So maybe there's going to be a portion out there that you're just going to let go wild. Uh, You're not going to disturb the soil. If you're cleaning up litter in the lawn now, maybe some of those uh, branches will sit there. And as they partially decompose, they provide, again, habitat for these insects that may look a little bit unsightly, so you put a sign there and you say, this is my native (laughs) population habitat that I'm establishing here. (laughs) And you let the bees uh, know where they're supposed to be, too. Bees here only. All right. Hey, we've got to take a a phone call, Bob, real quick. Hi, who's this? Great, great. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm calling. Good morning. Uh, I'm cleaning up my yard right now, and my Magnifica rose bush has gall on it. And I'm wondering about this gall. Am I spreading it by using my pruning shears on it? and Or should I uh, make sure, is there any way to get rid of it? Or make sure okay. that all those little round balls are not in the soil? Or is, is it just hopeless? Uh, well, 
Uh, that's a good question. The galls, these are insect galls, and what you're seeing is that cap, that protective uh, cap that's on those galls. First off, uh, there's no insecticide that's going to be useful at this point. I would say uh, prune it up as appropriate. Uh, now, these are shrub roses, are they, I'm assuming? Yes, I've had them for quite some time, and and um, I'm wondering, will I spread it to other roses, or um, is it uh, done totally by the insects? Really a good question. It, this is an insect issue here. It's not a disease issue. So you don't you don't really have to worry about spreading it. You're going to have a substantial insect population there because these are for overwintering and protection of next year's group of insects. So, But insect populations tend to go up and they tend to go down. And uh, sometimes when they're almost unmanageable, we've hit a peak and then we see a natural decline in the population. So I think as you're pruning, you can take them. If you have an easy way of disposing it off-site, and I don't know where you're calling from, but uh, we have many municipal sites where they could be deposited and uh, worked into a composting system where with a hot compost they can take care of some of the insects. So I would just uh, think of it this way. We're not going to spread to other plants as such. But we do have the reservoir for a high insect population there because there are going to be a lot of legs, with, a lot of eggs, which will ultimately be crawlers than immature insects. So if you can take the prunings that have the galls on them and prune off uh, any of the galls and move them off site, uh, I think that's the best you can do. If not, uh, and you're a good composter, you could compost them on site, or you could uh, you could dig them into the ground to just try to minimize the insect disease pressure that might come from that. Now, that being said, we might have a different year, and uh, we might not even get hatch out of some of those insects because populations, again, are dependent oftentimes on weather conditions. Just a few thoughts, but it's not a disease. You don't have to worry about it spreading, but you do have the potential for a higher population. And if you're very alert and if you feel so inclined, if you see some of these crawlers, there would be some insecticidal controls as well. But we'd rather stay away from those. At this point, we'd rather just minimize the pressure uh, that may come from some of those galls. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Thanks. And also, with, uh, with my mulch, should I be applying fertilizer to the mulch, or should I uh, get it farther out just under the mulch away from the plants? Wow, good, really good, thoughtful questions that you have here. Um, when you say mulch, are we talking about wood chip mulch, organic mulches? Just describe the mulch to me, yeah, please. Yeah, I usually use a, um, a, a wood, uh, you know, like um, cedar yeah. mulch, or I use leaves. I've got a lot of leaves. Too. Okay. Leaves for the raspberries, and then around okay. my roses, I've been using this, the uh, cedar and I'm wondering, okay. should I mix it in with the cedar, or should I put it down on the bottom? Okay, there are a couple of, couple of really good thoughts. Uh, first off, you've got all organic materials there, whether it be leaves or whether it be wood chips from one source or another, so they're all organics. Uh, a mulch, you really don't want to break down. What the mulch does for you is the mulch uh, keeps moisture in the soil, uh, the mulch, um, uh, you know, uh, will ultimately very slowly break down, but it keeps moisture in the soil and it controls weeds. Uh, those are our two principal functions for some of these mulches. So if you've got a cedar mulch, cedar is a very resistant material. You really want it to stay as a mulch. You don't want it to necessarily break down. But your, your plants themselves are going to need a little additional fertility. 
So I would be making an application of a, maybe a slow-release fertility. Are you familiar with a product like, I'll use a name brand here, Osmocote, another name brand would be Big Amp? Yep, yep. Okay. Well, there's a three-month and a six-month, and do oh, I wait you, until they're leafed out, or do I just use it right away in the spring? You know, what you got going there is, you know, that's going to be a slow-release, and it'll give you your plants what they need over time. And uh, that release process will occur a little bit more rapidly as temperatures go up. I would, uh, let's use the example of your shrub roses with maybe a cedar mulch. What I would do is I'd have the mulch off. I would make an application of a slow release, scrape gently into the soil. Uh, we don't want to get down where we disturb any roots, but let's get that in the soil. And that will slowly release and feed your roses and go through the season when you put the fertility on, and that could be done, uh, maybe give it another week or so till things warm up just a little bit, be put on then, and then you can cover that area after that with the mulch. If we put it just over the top of the mulch, it will break the mulch down, and that mulch will absorb a lot of the fertility, and you won't get it to the plant, and you don't want to break down the mulch because then it's gone, and you want that mulch to stay there through the entire season and provide uh, weed control and moisture conservation through the year. So the fertility, slow release, goes on the soil, and then the mulch goes on top of that, and uh, that'll feed those uh, those woodies or the uh, the shrub roses real well for you. That makes sense? That's good. And, and is it the same with uh, the daffodils and tulips and things, or um, get it under mm -hmm. mulch or not? Yeah, I really... Um, would like it under mulch, yes, because we wanted to get to the plant. We really don't want the mulch to break down. Now, if that's not possible or if you've got a pine mulch, uh, one advantage of breaking down that woody mulch or the leaves is that they do partially decompose, and then that organic will get down in the soil. So th there are some benefits of getting the fertilizer on top, but it does break the mulch down, and, and uh, most of that fertility won't get down to the plant. It'll be absorbed by the uh, the carbon in the uh, in the organic mulch before it gets to the plant. Okay. So yes, to get to the plant, I'd get the fertility first, then I'd cover with the mulch. So the mulch will stay there for much of the season, so that it performs its function. And pine and other materials will naturally mulch down for you, and you have to add a little bit every year to replace what you lost. So again, they perform their role. As a, uh, I'll just share this with you. When when we got it up on the surface, it's a mulch, and it's there for again weed control, moisture conservation. As it breaks down, gets into the soil, it's an amendment. So it's the same material, different stage of decomposition, and whether it's on the top of the soil or whether it's worked its way down into the soil. Once in the soil, it has value in terms of adding uh, texture to the soil and some nutrient release as well. Hey, thanks a lot for the call. we got to take a break. Good? Yep. Thank you very much. <laughs> you bet. 946 now at KDAL. All right, Bob, we are back, and we're back to the phones. Hi, who's on the phone? Hello, yeah, this is Dan um, calling from up by Elborne area. I, Bob, oh, uh, hi, thanks Dan. for the call, you guys. Thank you, Dan. What you got? Well, I planted some leeks for a first time uh, last well, it was a little bit late in the season last year, and of okay. course, I ended up planting them a little too close together, and they, you know, they did grow um, by l late October. 
I started to dig some up just to see what I actually had. And they were anywhere from a quarter inch to maybe a half inch. And I dug a few and then just kind of let it go and figured that I, I did it wrong. Um, this spring, I was surprised to see that the whole row basically is still all there. And I'm wondering about possibly digging them up, thinning them as far as moving them uh, strategically because the ground is so wet, the roots would be easy to uh, manipulate yes. you know, and get them loose. But I'm wondering if I did that and I replanted them, would they grow and just turn into seed? Or are they young enough yeah. do you think that maybe they would just keep maturing and actually become a decent-sized leek? Wow. That a... Well, you got a lot of a lot of uh, interesting ideas there. Number one, because I'm growing leeks, and I'll share this with my weeks. My leeks are going in uh, this this week, so they really grow very very slowly, and uh, they uh, require quite a season to get this real nice thick leek. And I, I think in many ways they're, you know, they're overlooked. There's some great recipes. I've got a great. Uh, Potato salad, leek potato salad is wonderful, and leek soups, of course, are wonderful. They're going to always be kind of a minor crop, but they're very, very nice in terms of flavor. To get the size, uh, you really need to uh, start as early as you can and start from transplants and then uh, get them in the ground and get them going as soon as you can uh, during the spring, and then they will mature for you and give that give you that good size. So there's the ideal. Now, we had this situation where we had uh, so much snow early, so they hadn't quite matured, and they're going to be covered with snow. They are biennial, so they're going to go into another phase next year where they will kick out uh, seed. I think what I might do is uh, leave them in place and thin them down so, you you know, you've got some where you haven't disturbed the roots, and then see if you can't get them to mature early. I would not let them uh, go through the entire season because as soon as you start setting seed heads, that pulls energy from the stem and the root, and then that will uh, that'll diminish the quality uh, pretty rapidly for you. So I think I'd probably uh, leave some undisturbed by thinning. In other words, you can take some, you're going to move them in another location and try to let them grow out, but then you've got some in that patch that were not disturbed. The roots can pick up all the moisture now and all the sunlight we've got, and they're going to take off. They're going to grow for you. I would watch them, though. I would probably harvest earlier than you would anticipate. We're not going to let them go to seed. Does that all, does that all make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Cause on that same note, I thought if they started to send a, uh, a bolt for a seed head or whatever, I thought, well, maybe if I just cut it off sooner than later, um, that yeah, might you could... promote more bulb growth. It might, it might, uh, but once again, uh, they're two years about what you're going to get out of them. They're not perennial. In other words, they go on yeah. year to year. So we're going through a cycle process here. We're going from immature juvenile to mature uh, seed-producing a portion of the plant's uh, life cycle. You can, you know, you kind of, most people, of course, uh, get them harvested that first year. They treat them like annuals. They don't let them go into the second year. So you're kind of in uh, uh, exploratory territory there. Some you could let go just from seed. Maybe you got a nice seed source there as well. Yeah. Well, nothing went to seed. I mean, it was all too young or too immature before, yeah. you know, when fall hit. Yeah, it's going to take that second year, uh, even if you let them grow and you matured them. And so it's going to take two years on that anyway so you haven't you haven't gone in that you're, you're kind of uh you're going to try to finish up that first year here but you really are in that 
second year of uh, of production, so there will be some seed later in the year for you. There are seed stock that'll farm. Okay. Well, okay. I'll give it a whirl give rather it, than just give it start a, over, I guess. Thank you, you so much. Give it a try, but start start some now for uh, for this fall and, and just have some fun with that if you got the room, and you can let us know how they turn out a little later in the season. Okay? Right. Thanks for the call, and, and Bob, we'll take another break and be right back. And we're back to Bob Olin Show. Oh, boy, this one went by fast, Bob. We've got time to wrap up already. I was just thinking a little bit about our last caller there, and uh, it is kind of interesting. Uh, he's growing out some leeks, and uh, I, I think they're an underappreciated vegetable crop for us. They do grow extremely well uh, this far north. They are uh, typically handled, as we mentioned, biennial. So for people who listen to that discussion here, he's in his second year, so he would anticipate at some point we're going to get some seed production there. We do have, as I was thinking about this, we do have some some leeks, native leeks, actually, that uh, are, per, are perennial. So they'll go on year after year. So it's interesting. Uh, most are treated, most are biennials. They don't, uh, after that seed is set, they don't really uh, carry over. They're not hardy enough, but there are some hardy varieties uh, that could carry over. But that being said, we almost always treat them as annuals. So even though they're perennial or uh, biennials, uh, we do treat them as annuals. The best way to get production is to start from seed uh, every year, and uh, they grow very, very slowly, develop some wonderful, uh, delicate flavors, and then uh, start early in the spring and then harvest later or varied in the fall. And that generally is the way we're going to handle and the leaks at this point, Dave. All right. So now is about the time to get them in, I suppose. Well, believe it or not, and we don't want too much tromping around out there on your <laughs> garden soils, and that's one thing. We are late this year, yeah. and uh, it depends. If you've got a heavy clay, I'd definitely stay off there. And if you've got uh, maybe a lighter sand, I think you want to think about uh, planting a few of these onions and leeks uh, from transplants. If they were started in the greenhouse maybe on March 1st, those transplants can go in this week. The other thing, uh, gentlemen, about leeks, we, of course, dig a – dig a trench we're not going to put those in the up on the soil surface they have to go down so that the uh the stem as it does elongate uh get protected from the sun and uh has that nice white appearance that you're looking for so they go in a very deep trench and then we add soil as we build that up so they're handled a little different than your onions your onion transplants or from sets or from transplants they're going to go in just about at the uh, at the soil line if you've got a small bulb there about half the bulbs in the ground, half the bulbs out. We don't want to plant them any deeper, where, in fact, we dig a trench for the leeks. Again, we don't bury them, but we add soil as we go through the growing season. Interesting question. Yeah. Considered a minor crop, but I think it's a crop that grows very well for us in this area, and more people should look at it. Some of the recipes, uh, the soups and so forth, are absolutely delicious, but it does take a good season to grow them out. Well, that's your look at leeks, and that's the end of the Bob Olin Show today. Bob, thanks. <laughs> we'll catch you back here again My next pleasure. Tuesday. My pleasure, Dave. Right. Have a good week. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located inside Dan's Feed Bin on Hammond Avenue in Superior. And by Matilda's Dog Bakery and Pet Nutrition Center in Lakeside across from the Lake Walk. News, weather, sports. 610 and FM 103.9 KDAL.